For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be frightened, Mary, the angel told her. God has chosen to bless you. You will become pregnant and have a son, and you're to name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. But Mary asked the angel, How can I have a baby? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby born to you will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. While Mary was still a virgin, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her fiancé, being a just man, decided to break the engagement quietly so as not to disgrace her publicly. As he considered this, he fell asleep, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Don't be afraid to go ahead with your marriage to Mary, for the child in her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All of this happened to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. He will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. This prophecy from Isaiah 7:14 was given 700 years before Jesus was born. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He brought Mary home to be his wife, but she remained a virgin until her son was born. And at that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. All returned to their own towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled from the village of Nazareth in Galilee and took with him Mary, his wife, who was great with child. And while they were there, there came time for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. That night, there were shepherds in the fields outside the village guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terribly frightened, 
But the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news of great joy for everyone. A Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born tonight in Bethlehem, the city of David. And this is how you will recognize him. You will find a baby lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. And suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host from heaven, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The angels left, and the shepherds said to each other, Come, let us go to Bethlehem and see this wonderful thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they ran to the village, and they found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. The shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard their story were astonished. But Mary kept these things in her heart. The shepherds went back to their fields and flocks, glorifying and praising God. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And at that same time came wise men from the east in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star that arose and have come to worship him. Herod was deeply disturbed by their question, as was all of Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law. Where do the prophets say the Messiah will be born, he asked. In Bethlehem, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. O Bethlehem of Judea, you're not just a lowly village of Judah. For a ruler will come to you who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. This prophecy is found in Micah 5 and verse 2, and 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. Both were written 700 years before Jesus was born. So Herod sent a message to the wise men, asking them to come see him. At this meeting, he learned the exact time when they first saw the star. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem, Search diligently for the child, and when you find him, come and tell me that I may go and worship him too. After this meeting, the wise men went on their way, and once again the star appeared to them to guide them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house where the child and his mother were, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And they opened their treasure chests, and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But when it was time to leave, they went another way, because God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod will try and kill the child. That very night, 
Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Herod was furious. When he learned the wise men had outwitted him, he sent soldiers to kill all the baby boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under because the wise men had told him that the star had first appeared to them about two years before. Then later, when Herod died, God's angel appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, take the child and his mother and return to Israel. All those who wish to murder the child are dead. So Joseph obeyed. He arose and he took the child and his mother and he re-entered Israel. When he heard, though, that Herod's son had taken over as king in Judea, he was afraid to go there. But then Joseph was directed in a dream to go to the hills of Galilee. On arriving, he settled in the village of Nazareth, fulfilling the words of the prophets, He shall be called a Nazarene. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And this is the story of Christmas. If you have been with us uh, these last three weeks, you know that we've been in a, a teaching series called He Will Be Called. And we've been looking at one passage from the prophet Isaiah. Um, it's here on the screen this morning. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the last three weeks, we've looked at those names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, all culminating tonight with the name Prince of Peace. That word peace there, you can see it in, in parentheses behind the word, is in Hebrew is the word shalom. And, and at its base definition, the word shalom um, does mean peace. I mean, that's how it's all, most often translated in Scripture uh, throughout the Old Testament. There's a different Greek word, um, irene, which is where we get the name Irene from, uh, but used kind of the same way. But whenever we see it, it's always translated peace. Uh, today, even in Jewish culture, the, the word shalom is used as a common greeting when you meet somebody and also when you say goodbye to somebody. Um, I had the chance to go to Israel last year and uh, for 16 days we toured all around different sites and, and um, hiking in the mountains and studying these archaeological sites and looking at scripture and, and, and you'd meet people. And so the whole 16 days, uh, here's a bunch of Americans who aren't Jewish, you know, trying to pretend to be Jewish and we're saying shalom, 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 shalom. I, I don't know how many of you have been to Hawaii. Anybody? Raise your hands. Uh, aloha, evidently, is that term, similar use in, in Hawaii. You, say to, you use it to say hello to somebody, uh, you use it to say goodbye to somebody. And, but shalom means more than just hello. It means more than just goodbye. It, it means more than peace. Because when we hear the word peace, we as English-speaking people, uh, we think simply an absence of conflict, right? Uh, we think when we have peace, there's no more fighting. Uh, for example, I don't know how many of you have kids, but um, most of you were kids at one point, as I understand it. Um, 
And, and many of you had brothers and sisters. And, and I'm pretty confident that my house is not the only one where kids fight, right? Does that happen to anybody else's house? Just, just checking. Um, so for me, when my kids start going, and I've got my 10-year-old son here. My daughter was here last night with my wife. Um, when they start going, you know, and everything just kind of breaks out and my daughter's doing flying karate kicks off of furniture towards my son and, and he's like got the nerf swords out and he's swinging at her and everything. If we can like get that to stop happening, we think we have peace, right? I mean, there's no more conflict when they're not karate chopping each other or trying to kill each other. When they're actually sitting like civilized, small human beings, then we think we have peace because there's no more conflict. But that's not the word shalom in its true, deep meaning. Shalom is not simply the absence of conflict. It's the complete restoration of the relationship. It, it's, it's unity established once again. It's the way things are supposed to be. And so in our house, after we get done separating them and putting them in their corners, we make them go back to each other. <laughs> My son's like, what? He's <laughs> in the front row over here. Sorry, buddy. Don't talk right now. Um, that's the problem with being a pastor's kid. You get to be sermon illustrations all the time, whether you want to be or not. Um, so in our house, whoever was the instigator of whatever situation needed to be solved, um, we make that person go back and say, I'm sorry to the person. Now, a lot of times it looks like this. Say you're sorry. Sorry. Okay. Let's try one more time. Sorry. No, no, no. Let's say it like you mean it. Sorry. No. And we, we literally go through this like four or five times. Say you're sorry like you mean it. And they like stop and they look each other in the eye. And finally you can see a little bit of humanity come back. And they're like, I'm sorry. And in that moment is when we have shalom. Not simply the absence of conflict, but the restoration of the relationship. When they understand that they, they're meant to be brothers and sisters and to love each other. Uh, the word shalom means completeness, wholeness, soundness. The word shalom means that things are the way that they're supposed to be. Uh, do you ever have that feeling that things are not the way they're supposed to be? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my wife was making cookies for the youth group one night, and, and uh, I'm coming home from work, and she says, Honey, I, I kind of messed up on the cookies. And she goes, I don't think they turned out the way they're supposed to be. I was like, well, they can't be that bad. And so I, I, I walk in the house, and my wife has been working for hours on these cookies. And they, they were bad. Um, like, they just kind of melted in the pan, right? And, like, went really super thin flat. I could read newspaper through the cookie, right? You could, like, hold it up and see light coming through the cookie. Now, they tasted great. They really did. They tasted wonderful. But they were just really bad looking. And my son comes in. He goes, those are ugly cookies, Mom. But maybe, maybe more than cookies, we know that things in the world are not the way they're supposed to be. Right? We know that life sometimes doesn't turn out the way that it's supposed to be. We know that relationships aren't oftentimes the way they're supposed to be. And innocent people are victim. We know that the economy isn't always the way it's supposed to be. We know that in our schools we have bullying and, and violence. And we know that we have war around the world and terrorism. And we know millions and millions of people are displaced from their homes and sent to refugee camps uh, where the basic needs of life aren't even there. 
We know that all around the world, there's poverty. There's intense hunger. There's children dying for lack of basic needs. And there's natural disasters. And we just know, deep down in our heart, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And it wasn't always that way. We get a glimpse of the way it's supposed to be when we go back to the first couple chapters in this book. When we look at Genesis 1 and 2, and we see God creating the world, and he says at the end of creation that it was very good. He looked at everything he'd created, and he said it's very good. There was, there was shalom, uh, unity, restoration of relationship, wholeness, completeness, soundness between God and mankind. God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. Uh, there was shalom among the human beings. Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they were naked, and they had no shame. Uh, there was shalom between uh, human beings and the natural world. But unfortunately, you know the story. Man decided to be like God. And in that moment, shalom fell apart. Mankind was separated from God. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Uh, The relationship uh, between Adam and Eve was strained. And and we see in just the next generation, Cain and Abel, uh, the first murder recorded in Scripture. Uh, We see the natural world becomes devastated, not the way God intended it to be. And Genesis 3 says that that thorns and thistles grew up where it was never meant to be. And and if we were to stop here, if if you were to approach Scripture like a book and just start in chapters 1 and 2, and and you stop there uh, after chapter 3, you get a really bleak look at the world. Uh, You don't have the whole story because at that moment, shalom does not exist. There is no completeness between God and man and between man and man. If we stay in that moment, we're outside the garden. And the incredible thing is that God knew that. And God didn't keep it there. He knew that he needed to intervene to restore shalom to the world. And what we celebrate at Christmas, the the birth of Christ was God taking that step to restore shalom. I like how Paul writes in Colossians, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace, he made shalom with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. You see, Jesus is the restorer of shalom. He is the prince of peace. He was given the task of of bringing the world and mankind back to the way things are supposed to be. And his death on the cross ushered in a new age, a new kingdom, the kingdom of God here on earth. Uh, This book, from Genesis to Revelation, is God's story of restoring mankind back to the relationship we had with him in the garden. It's God's story of bringing shalom back to the world. And if you have read the end of the story, you know that we win. In Revelation 21, uh, we see these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. God himself will walk among us as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. 
all of these things are gone forever. You see, Christmas is an annual reminder. If we think of it no other time throughout the year, that God took the first step to restore the relationship between man and God. That God took the first step to bring shalom back to a world that was experiencing a lack, a loss of shalom, to make us whole, complete. You see, Christ died to give you life. We celebrate his birth, but we know that that's just the start of his story. We know that it culminates three decades later on the cross and in an empty tomb. And we know that, that Christ died to give us life, life eternally, that begins now and is displayed in our lives, however few years we may have here on this earth, in passionate devotion to him and his word. It is the greatest gift that God could ever give us. It's the greatest gift that you could ever receive on Christmas. God took Jesus, wrapped him up, and placed him at our feet and said, this is my gift to you. See, God is not a pushy God. See, God puts that, that present under our tree every year. And every year we have a choice. We see it there. It's, our name is on it. And we have the choice to either open it or leave it behind. And I don't know about in your house, but in my house, no present gets left unwrapped, right? I mean, we get done with the presents and the kids are scouring looking for more. Just, just in case that Red Rider BB gun is back there behind the tree, right? You're not getting a BB gun, Ethan. Sorry. And yet for so many of us throughout our lives, we've left that one unopened present. And we come back next Christmas and we're reminded again of what God did for us. Reminded again of the gift he gave us. And so my encouragement, my challenge is that if you've never opened that gift, if you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, that this Christmas would be the year that you open that present. Jesus gave us another reminder of his gift as well. It's a reminder that, that has been used in churches for over 2,000 years. It's a reminder that takes us back to, to a meal that he had with his followers. The night before he was betrayed, um, Jesus was having a meal, and, and it was the Passover meal. And, and in the midst of that meal, he's explaining to his followers that he's about to go, that he's about to leave. And he wants to give them a reminder, some, some symbol of, of remembering what he did for us. And so he instituted in that night communion. And if you would, go ahead and reach under your chairs and grab this small cup. I'll give you a few moments here. Go ahead, if you would, and peel that first top layer off and take the bread out. Don't eat it yet. We'll do that together. Jesus, that night, took the bread at the table and he used it as a symbol of his body broken for us. And, and there's nothing uh, magical or super spiritual about this bread. This, this bread is just a reminder. But it's a reminder that takes us back to who Jesus was and to what he did for us. And I want to read before we take the bread together. I want to read from Corinthians 
Paul says these words, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you go back to that meal, Jesus, being fully God and fully man, knew what was about to happen. Knew the the pain and the suffering he was about to experience. Knew how much blood he would lose as a human being through the torture, through the crucifixion. His followers, it just occurred to me, his followers had no clue the significance of what he was about to say to them. How, how visual that was. Because he knew that just a few short hours, the blood would flow from his head, from his wrists, from his feet, from his back, his side. What a powerful image the next day when his followers saw what they thought was a, a tragedy. Jesus took the cup. There were four cups of wine that were used during the Passover meal. Uh, Historians believe it was about the third cup, about three-quarters of the way through the meal. When he took it, he lifted it up, and he says these words, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. I would ask if you would just place those under your chair. We're going to clean those up here in a little while. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.